aliens and flying saucers. This is all an illusion. Hey, hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the seventh episode of Two Riders Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers and a couple of non-bestsellers, and a Bleacher Report contributor. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the excellent MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novel to whatever. And today's guest is way outside the box of the first six episodes. If you don't know the name Mike Tolan, you 100% know his work. Among other things, he was the producer of Varsity Blues, I Don't Want Your Life. He was also the producer of Summer Catch, where we saw a questionable Freddie Prince Jr. trying to throw a baseball, of Radio, of Coach Carter. He's the executive producer of The Bronx's Burning, of Small Potatoes, my favorite 30 for 30 about the USFL. He has some weird, awesome stuff on his resume all over the place. 1982 wrote The Baseball Bunch. He did a documentary, Hank Aaron, Chasing the Dream. He was a producer of Good Burger. And now he brings us Morningside 5, which just premiered earlier this month, but will air uh, later in the summer as a 30 for 30 on ESPN. Uh, It's a story of the Morningside high school basketball team from Inglewood and uh, comes 25 years after he followed them around. Anyway, I've known Mike for a long time. He shares my love of the USFL. And now here he is on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. Mike, you have the, the, I don't know how well you remember this, but the first time I spoke with you was, and this is a good segue here. I'd written a book called The Bad Guys One about the 1986 Mets. And sure. there was a guy who was a, I don't know, a quote unquote screenwriter. And who, who will remain nameless because I can't remember his name. I can't either. I don't think he's in the business. It'd be very unlikely. And <laughs> he says to me, I want to pitch your book to this guy, Mike, and he's done a bunch of movies and blah, blah, blah. And I want you on the line. And I was like, oh, okay. So mm. I was sitting in a coffee shop in New York City, Sunburst, and I'm on the line. And he says, you're on the line. He, and you go, you're like, all right, shoot. And he goes, all right. It starts in a 14-year-old boy named Jeff's bedroom, and he's watching the Mets on TV. And I was like, fuck, what is going on here? And I was thinking, like, there has to be – I mean, your resume is insane. It's deep. It's long. You've done everything. You've seen everything. It seems like there is a good way for a writer to pitch and a bad way for a writer to pitch. And that mm. just struck me as the worst way for a writer to pitch anything well, ever. you remember, you know, he did his pitch. We were as polite as possible. We – dismissed him you called me back or i called you back and you probably remember what i said yeah worst pitch ever wpe um it i apologized been... to you i actually called well, you no. and i was like mike no, i no. just want you to know i have nothing to do with that guy i knew that already and we turned it into something which of course like most things in my business ultimately turned into nothing um i don't know if we really said this um to so the uh, the listeners know what we're talking about this was a really entertaining book you wrote about the 86 Mets. One of the wildest, craziest, triumphant seasons in pro sports, at least in our memories. And um, this guy pitched a ridiculous take on it that was, I mean, it was mind-boggling. It was, you know, it was sort of a comedy sketch. Right. But after, you know, we digested it and made fun of it and moved on, I said to you, forget that insanity. Let's make the doc. I mean, these guys are all, you know, as a, as a filmmaker who spends a lot of time in the uh, 
you know, what used to be called the sandbox. Now sports is a little bit more legit. It's a little bit more part of the mainstream pop culture landscape. Um, but, you know, it's fun and games. Um, but as somebody who's done a bunch of feature films in that world, a bunch of documentaries, a bunch of short form, scripted TV series, so forth and so on, you get a story or you find a character or something whets your appetite and it feels like there's a story to be told. And the first thing you got to do is figure out, you know, why and then how. Um, and, you know, the how is often scripted or unscripted. Now it's long form, short form, digital, linear, branded, not, you know, on and on and on. But it immediately struck me that this makes more sense to pursue as a documentary because the protagonists are alive and I'm guessing, in, for the most part, willing. The archival mater material exists. Like, it's sort of like, you know, my problem with, let's just take Ali as a movie that was lauded, mm -hmm. that had, you know, one of, you know, one of our greatest contemporary leading man actors, one of our, you know, greatest American filmmakers over the last several decades. But still, like, I'd rather watch Muhammad Ali footage than Will Smith impersonating Muhammad Ali. So, right. like... Just give me the documentary any day of the week. So we abandoned that sil sil <clears throat> silliness and went right to let's make the doc. And um, not to belabor uh, a sinking ship, but we got Ron Darling. Um, he was in and uh, we basically sold it in, in a room. Uh, you, me and Ron and the director. Right. Yep. And uh, but then we needed to get Daryl and Doc and we went over two, and that was the end of that. But um, would have been a great doc. Yeah, they is made the Daryl and Doc. Did you like the Daryl and Doc film? Um, I didn't see it. Oh, okay. Did you like it? It was okay. I, I mean, it was hard for me because you know, I knew what we could have done, which I think would have been much cooler and more fun. Yeah, I was told what people said. The complaint was that it felt kind of contrived. You had two guys sitting in a diner having this sort of dialogue that that wasn't a real dialogue in a way. Which... Well, that's true. But I get that. You know, you see the pains of the filmmaker's craft. Yeah, you want that. You don't want it to be obvious. You don't want um, you, you don't want to feel the hand of the filmmaker. But uh, my bigger misgiving was that it was sad. And what we would have made would have been so fun and so celebratory. Right. Like, I get that Daryl and Doc have had hard times. And I can see that on E60 or I can see that on Real Sports or I can see that on Charles Corralt or somebody. Is he still alive? I don't know, but, um, I, you know, I prefer to make films where, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be all uh, strawberries and cream, but um, I just think, you know, that, that was a raucous team with amazingly fun stories, which you captured in your book. Are we selling some books here at least? I hope so. I yeah. Hope so. Yeah. so on to the next. Do you, um, what's the difference between, you get, you, you, you probably see, I mean, in the course of your life, you've probably seen 8 million screenplays scripts etc i'm sure it's a dizzying buffet of boring and annoying and every now and then you get a gem um what's a gem like how how do you how do you when you see a gem how do you know it's a gem you don't um you uh you hopefully you're gonna laugh you're gonna cry you're gonna be moved you're gonna be inspired you're gonna go wow i've never heard or seen this before some some variation of all of that um you know Usually, not usually, often it comes to me having been read by my very small but very 
hearty and cool staff of development folks who kind of have a clue of what we want to do and the things I might respond to. Um, I'm going to give you an example. This is sort of like a pitch for something uh, that hasn't happened, but we hope to happen. And, you know, maybe there's somebody out there who's going to, you know, write a $5 million check and then it will happen. Um, no, we think it's going to happen, but this is sort of an interesting circuitous route. So Chris Ballard, you know him? Of course. Great guy, great, great writer, guy. sports illustrated, wrote a book called one shot of forever. I read the article in SI um, and I thought it was good, but like not really a movie. Um, it was about, it's basically a baseball Hoosiers, small town in the middle of Illinois, like, you know, barely can get 15 guys to fill out a baseball roster and they're going against, you know, the 5,000 uh, class of 5,000 from the big school upstate. And, you know, they get all the way to the finals. It's cool and it's real. And I met the guys and we uh, I, I, ultimately I said no. And then people kept saying, Tolan, you got to read the book. This is great. You're going to love it. I try to be resistant and I try to let the evidence being overwhelming um, so that it's, um, you know, I sort of, you know, I got I got to be re resistant and reluctant because there aren't a lot of guys that do what we do because it's so goddamn hard to to do sports movies or to make mainstream media with sports as a predominant theme or even a backdrop or, or primary character. So we got to just like say no before we even dive in and assume 999 out of a thousand will have to remain a no. So I, I go in, you know, with one eye closed and then I kept stumbling into people who said, you got to read this book. And I actually had the clubhouse, manager from the Phillies, whose name is Frank Koppenbarger, who got me the tickets to go see the Phillies against the Angels last night, which mm -hmm. was Aaron Nola's eighth straight. Give me a minute for uh, yeah, Phillies ahead. indulgence, will you? So Aaron Nola pitched his eighth straight game of having given up two or less runs. Is that impressive or not really? Yeah, it's pretty good, especially for the Phillies. Except they lost because yeah, well. <laughs> they only scored one and, they, and the bullpen gave up five. Anyway, so Frank Koppenberger is now, you know, uh, elevated to something and he gets me the ticket. So he's become a lifelong friend. And every time I right. see him, he goes, what happened to that book? Well, Hey Frank, come on. I just made a movie Chuck that, you know, I optioned in 2003. So, you know, give me some time, man. It's only been five or six years. Anyway, Frank hands me the book as I'm leaving Philly to get back on a plane. And I said, all right, I'll read it. I read it. I love it. I woo Chris Ballard by, by this point, there's competition for it. He says, all right, you're the guy. You know, we, we make an option deal. Uh, really didn't quite uh, attract the right cast or we couldn't quite solve the third act or whatever. It's a good script. We have it back in development. I want to make it someday. I stay in touch with Chris Ballard. We take shots at different cast members to play the coach. And I, I do believe someday we'll make it. Meanwhile, um, a writer named Grant Thompson comes in. He's pitching something, and he says, "Have you read my script, Morning Glory?" And I say, "No." And he goes, "Oh, you got it. You got it. I'll send it to you." And I go, "Is that?" He goes, "Yeah, it's a story that Chris Ballard wrote in Sports Illustrated that I read and decided I didn't. I didn't want to pursue it because I already had a Chris Ballard thing that was stuck in development, and also this was too sad." And so I, you know, I'd read the story and I was familiar with it, but I actually didn't know it was made into a script and it was, um, had studio behind it. Um, he says, I'll send it to you. And it goes to my development guys. And again, I'm like, ah, I'm not really interested. And the two or three of them said, I think you got to read this, Mike. 
I'm like, no, 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 no. You really got to read this. So again, with reluctance and resistance, I read it on a plane from uh, New York to the Bay Area. And it's amazing. And I'm, you know, sort of hiding my tears in my seat in, on JetBlue. Right. And I'm flying to the Bay Area where Chris Ballard le- lives. And I'm like really moved by this thing, kind of blown away. And I pick up the phone when I land and call Chris Bauer and say, we got to have breakfast tomorrow. And um, by the end of the day, I've sort of put one shot of forever on hold. (laughs) And I'm now developing what's called Morning Glory. It's the story of, remember Nick Aidenhart, the pitcher for the Angels? Of course. Okay, so this rookie pitcher goes out and gets his first major league win. And then after the game, is in a car in an intersection and gets blindsided and instantly killed. the true story is uh, of his his college catcher is watching the game on TV from across the country, and he's so excited, and he's calling Nick and leaving messages on his voicemail, and like you know, he's like living through his buddy and his ex teammate. Wakes up the next morning, Nick's dead. Goes back to the small town in Maryland for the funeral. Um, his father is retiring as the baseball coach. His father convinces him become the baseball coach maybe as part of a grieving cathartic exercise being a part of you know this this town that he was you know uh that he grew up in and he's connected to and then incredibly he's coaching this team and they're about to head to the playoffs and his star pitcher who's also everybody's favorite guy is about to go to the prom with his not yet girlfriend who's everybody's favorite girl and with no alcohol in their system, they run the car into the tree and immediately after the prom are both killed. Whoa. And, and somehow, you know, they go through the grieving process and, oh, we should obviously cancel the playoffs. We can't play. And then um, the, the, the pitcher's best friend convinces the coach, Nick Aidenhurt's catcher to continue playing. And they magically go on this run and win the state title on a suicide bun in a tie game in the bottom of the ninth inning in the finals. And it's like, you just, you can't make that stuff up. So man, that was a long way around. I'm sure you'll edit this. I hope you can find a you know, a shorter version of it. I don't think so. I actually love that story. Well, it's just so damn moving and I'm so excited. And we went back to grand Thompson we're doing a little rewrite and we're going to go out with this thing. Um, and find cast members. And, you know, I I hope I get to tell the story again with a movie being made. It's just, you know, sometimes it's just, it just, it hits you. It's got to hit you viscerally. It's got to, you know, on some emotional level, you got to say people are going to really respond to this, not necessarily sports fans. There's a lot in it for women. There's a lot of romance. There's a lot of comedy. There's these great real life characters and it's just, it just kills you. Mike, let me ask you a question about this. Um, because I, I think about this stuff a lot, actually, when I watch movies. So I'm a uh, I'm a bad watcher of sports movies because I feel like I know too not too much about sports. Right. You know what I mean? Like um, I do. When I saw Forty Two, I hated Forty Two because I hated <laughs> Jackie Robinson standing at home plate watching the ball fly out of the park. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I hate uh-huh. that shit so much. And the one I really disliked was We Are Marshall. Um, oh, interesting. And I'll tell you why. Because he 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 messed with so much of it. Um, It was, you know, just little things and big things and making up characters and blah, blah, blah. And I felt like this is something that really happened. This is a real tragedy. This is not something to goof around with, but maybe I don't get it. And when I want to ask you, like, let's say you actually make this movie and let's say they didn't win at the end, you know, let's say they lost at the end. 
Can you, as a filmmaker, no. not a doc, can you change that? Well, I'm going to say no, but one of the most successful and beloved sports movies completely violates that code, and that's the natural, right? I mean, Bernard Malamud writes this, you weren't born, even I wasn't born, but, you know, a great piece of American literature. And Robert Redford makes this movie, um, and it's brilliantly shot. It's got a great cast. It's kind of epic and sprawling. And they completely reverse the ending. Completely. Like, wow. just, you know, my... So, no, I would not do that. Like, in the <clears throat> the first Chris Ballard story, One Shot of Forever, they lose in the finals. I love the way they lose. I love that they come home and it's prom night and they're in their baseball uniforms and they go to the prom and they're all celebrated. And it's kind of like, we lost the battle, we won the war. Look what we did. Um, there are lines that you you have to establish for yourself as a filmmaker and then <laughs> just vow to not cross. And we all kind of move them a little bit. We all kind of want to mess with them and take poetic license. Um, but like when we, we, we have several movies um, where we've had to address this. Um, and there's three levels. I have this book sitting on my table and it's called um, Real, R-E-E-L, V, Real, R-E-A-L, How Hollywood Turns Fact into Fiction. Um, so you can say um, radio, a true story, radio based on a true story, radio inspired by a true story. Obviously, they go in, uh, uh, in order of most religious to the truth to least. Right. And um, inspired by a true story liberates you. But still, even though we, we use that as the subtitle, um, here's, what I, here's what I did do, would do, didn't do, wouldn't do. Um, I did compress time. I did composite characters. I did, um, you know, maybe change the outcomes of some kind of meaningless games during the regular season. I did invent some bit part characters. Um, what I wouldn't do and didn't do um, is change the spirit of this character, you know, add additional disabilities or make him have special powers, you know, make him Rain Man. <laughs> right. Right. He or can make him white. Or like, as one executive said, does he have to be black? Yeah, he fucking has to be black. Right, right. This is this is James Robert Kennedy. He's black. I got a picture of him in my office. Me and him hugging. Um, Cuba Gooding, great casting, great guy. Had a lot of fun with him. Um, There was a real Coach Jones. He did have that relationship with him. Radio was beloved in this school. Those were his disabilities. He was considered a distraction. They did ultimately lead to the coach being dismissed because they weren't winning and they blamed it on radio. Um, they didn't win any championships that, you know, that didn't happen in real life. It's the spirit of it. It's the, the tenor, the tone of it that you have to be true to. Um, you know, in Morning Glory, uh, yeah, we'll probably change the relationship between the father and son and how the son chose to come back to the town and coach the team. Um, but the girlfriend is real. And the, clearly uh, the story of the two kids who died so tragically is completely real. The outcome of the state tournament is 100% real. You know, along the way, you know, you'll do some things, hopefully, that even the people who were part of it won't remember but it's funny you have we are marshall i have remember the titans oh yeah i'm with you 100 percent. same thing like and and yet here's 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 what i learned 
you know, we're making varsity blues, which was fictional. So it wasn't so much about like, you know, adhering to the truth. Although we did go, Brian Robbins and I went to the Texas high school football championships in the Astrodome. We watched the games. We met the coaches. We were with the players as they were crying, crying either because they've just played their last game of football or crying because they're never going to see these guys again as they go on to play in college, whatever. Um, really worked hard with the writer, John Gatons to make as, as crazy and out there and as invented as the whipped cream bikini was, right. we feel like we captured the real spirit of Texas high school football. And we worked really hard with the coordinator, Mark Ellis, to make the football fun as hell to watch and authentic and real. And then I see, remember the Titans, like the football is ridiculous. It's boring. It's fake. It's not, it's not anything close to real or exciting. The details of the story are completely made up. And it doesn't matter, Jeff. Like, they got Denzel Washington. Is that what it is? He's, well, it's a big part of it. I mean, you know, Denzel Washington versus uh, who? James <laughs> Vanderbeek. Well, no, we had John Voight. Yeah, yeah, right. So John, John Voight did just fine. But the dude who, with all due respect, um, Glory Road, which was the Texas Western, um, Kentucky. Um, you, you know what I mean. Yeah, of, course, um, of course. Good actor, but not a movie star. Yeah. And it just never, you know, kind of cut through. So it's just, you know, you never really know. It's the movie gods. Are they smiling on you or not? Wait, would you, Mike, would you say, Var I'm actually being sincere when I ask this. Would you say Varsity Blues is a better movie than um, Remember the Titans? No. Oh. I, I would say it's a more fun movie and it's probably more beloved 20 years later. I mean, we are now giving you all these scoops, Jeff, we are now developing Varsity Blues, the series. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Um, with Vanderbeek and some others from the, from the, from the crew and from the team, from the cast. Um, I just, you know, feel like, you know, you, you get a sense when you're out there of which things resonate, which things, you know, have a life that goes way beyond, you know, the, the video, <laughs> video store. Um, I think Varsity Blues has a cult following. I hear people all the time reciting lines of dialogue from it and also. And I think Remember the Titans really worked at the time. It did probably double the box office, but I don't think it sort of has the legs. Right. Um, I don't want to say, yeah. Better. I know what you mean. I, I know what you, mean. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this earlier, and I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. Um, so I've had, I've had four of my books optioned at one point or another, and I've kind of learned, you know, the first time it happens, you're like, yes. And then by the fourth time, you're like, all right, is there some money I'm getting for free here? Because that would be great. Right. And um, I feel like the book I wrote that has the most sort of uh, narrative sort of feel to it is Walter Payton. And I've been told many times, if Walter Payton were white, my chances would be better. Mm. And I wonder, is that true? I don't know. I don't mean specifically to true. him. I mean in the business in general. Be I don't Yeah. Being really pragmatic about it, if it's true, the extent to which it's true is really the extent to which it might be easier to cast because there might be a broader pool of actors who can, quote, open a movie. Right. Um, here's my thing. Okay, now we're going to get into like some some therapy between you and me. Great. Um, I don't know if I want to do this publicly, but like I think I might have said this to you. You and I do the opposite thing in terms of the stories we choose and the way we choose to tell them. I like um heroes i like happy endings um and you like scandal and ruffling feathers and creating controversy 
And it's funny because I think you might have sent me that book or somebody might have sent me that book. And it just turns out I have a friend whose son, I think, married Walter Payton's daughter. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like I, I can't even get near this thing. It's so right. toxic. And like, you know what? Uh, and you understand this. This isn't a knock on you. Uh, but like, I don't want to know that shit about Walter Payton. I really don't. I'm right. fine with Walter Payton being who he was on the field, who he was off the field, celebrated in both. Um, it's not like I want to, you know, hide, you know, hide from the truth. Um, you know, I, the, the Phillies are honoring Pete Rose next weekend, putting him on the wall of fame. And, you know, this week we're dealing with these allegations that he raped this woman girl who's right. like under fifth statutory rape right right from 40 years ago it's probably true um you know it definitely impacts my feeling about him um but he is that you know he is a he's a different sort of guy um i look at a guy like alan iverson again just because i see sports through the prism of philly mostly philly misery but like i remember my son was wearing an Allen Iverson jersey for, I don't know, say fifth birthday. And my mother said, how can you let your son parade around in that uniform of that thug? And I stopped and thought, huh, well, that's what, I get it. That's what she thinks. There's obviously enough stuff in the news with guns and right. domestic violence and so on and so on. But like, God, he's fun to watch. And man, that 2001 season when the Sixers had no shot and no reason to be there and won, beat the Bucks for the conference title and stole a game yeah, from the Lakers, and he stepped over Tyron Lue, and like, I love this guy. I taught my kids to appreciate NBA basketball by watching this guy. Watch the little guy. Watch, he's going to go score over those big guys. They're going to knock him down. He's going to get up and score again. Like the competitiveness, the ferocity, that spirit. Like, I love Allen Iverson. I will always love Allen Iverson. I uh, and I have no qualms about having my kids look up to him and worship him. You can separate church and state um it's just i guess maybe i'm being contradictory here but i guess when it you know and i and i executive produced the alan iverson documentary um it was i think it was relatively hard-hitting i think it was truthful i think it was inclusive of most of the sins he's accused of and some of which he committed um so you know okay um but i guess when it comes to adapting for fiction and telling Stories. If I if I if I look around at what we've done, the stories we've told, you know, it's just a very different quality. Um, I guess maybe it's you know now this is good therapy for me. Now I think about bad the the bad guys won. It's like why I gravitated to a documentary um, because if it's if it's real and you can incorporate, you know, all the all the sins, but but all the fun, um, and just try to you know come up with a an entertaining stew that works you know what's interesting is i um i know i actually don't it's kind of funny i actually don't love um scandal i'm not even just saying that like i hate finding out uh let's just say out of wedlock kid right like in the case right. of Hayden, i absolutely hate that shit and m my wife will verify that like i hate it i just don't know how you write a definitive biography of someone like a historical uh, historic accounting of their life you know, if, if you find out yeah. someone had an affair, like a one-time affair, all right, whatever, who cares? If you find out a guy had a, a kid who lived two miles away from him who he didn't take care of, but you're writing how great this guy is, I just don't know how you can do that and call yourself a biographer. 
you know what I mean? Fair enough. Well, I, I don't call myself biographer. You do. You've done it really well. <laughs> no, no, seriously. I'm not saying that dismissively or demeaningly. You, you, that's, you've done it. You've done really well. You've made a great career out of it. I had a big public uh, argument in 2006 when I was doing a series for ESPN on Barry Bonds called Bonds on Bonds. Oh, yeah. And man, was I taken to task. Man, was I vilified. Talk about guilt by association. I go on when Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman had a radio show. Yeah. And they put me on. They're like, how can you, how can you call yourself a journalist? I said, I don't. I haven't since I wrote for the Stanford Daily <laughs> a lot of years ago. Right. I'm a filmmaker. And I'm, and you know, I went to the Disney company all the way to the top. You know, there's, there's John Skipper at ESPN, there's Bob Iger, the Disney company. And they felt like if you really have Barry Bonds, that's the number one story in sports right now. And we're in, and they spent a lot of money for the access that I was granted and was able to put on the screen week after week. That was a disaster. I mean, talk about, <laughs> I'm trying to remember what happened. Did it get canceled uh, quick or what was the deal with it? Well, the short form is that he sucked. He couldn't hit homers anymore. Yeah. So he started like uh, six away from Babe Ruth and uh, 47 away from Hank Aaron. So like he'll pass Babe Ruth in the first two weeks, right? And he might get to Hank Aaron by the end. And this is going to be amazing. We're just going to watch this unfold. Whether he was off the juice or he was too old or the layoff had been too great because he had come back just at the end of the previous season. Um, he couldn't hit homers. He was slow. His bat was slow. He looked old. He looked tired. So there was no real drama. Um, it was just a train wreck. He was the game of shadows had come out pretty much at the same time. He was back and forth going to, to, to the court to defend himself and just to make appearances, um, and, and stuff related to the, to the book and other accusations. And so it wasn't great TV. And then he finally broke episode six it took six weeks for him to hit those homers to break babe ruth and he goes on monday morning all right uh i'm gonna make the outline this week this is barry i'm gonna make the outline i'm gonna dictate the content uh this is my show and i'm like oh my no God. no you're not well yes i am or we're not doing it i said all right well why don't you you know do your work like i usually do and you want to send me something send it to me Meanwhile, we'd been, you know, raked over the coals. You know, I had the thing with Overman and Patrick. That was the tip of the iceberg, you know, on and on and on. It's funny. I had a conversation with Les Moonves during that time, and he said, why can't people separate? Like, NBC has this show, this homemaking cooking show with Martha Stewart, and their news division covers her trial as she's about to go to jail. Like, nobody blames them for doing the other show. You're, you're doing an entertainment show. You're doing a baseball show. And the other is the other. One's investigative journalism and one's entertainment. Anyway, the media didn't see it that way. We were getting crushed. Sandemir was writing frequently in the New York Times. He loved, he loved following it. So finally, I called John Skipper and I said, look, I made a contract with you and a commitment to you. And if you want this show to continue, understand that these are the conditions that, that Barry's set out this week for this show, which I'm not comfortable with. And I would, given the choice, walk away from this thing. But I have an obligation to you. And he said, no, no, we support you. We don't want to do that. We always said we weren't going to compromise the integrity of the show. It's not Barry's show. It's our show. And ultimately, Sandemir got the scoop. And uh, he called 
I, to, I told him you should, you should get it from Skipper. And there's a column out there somewhere in this early summer of 06 where basically it says Tolan refused and the show died. And that was it. Wow. So I, I, I kind of feel good about that, as it turns out. I like how you basically You're, signed up to do a show with the biggest asshole in the history of sports. It's like, well, ba- well, Barry came to me and said, you know, I love what you did with Hank Aaron. I want you to do that for me. And I'm thinking, there's no way you can do for Barry Bonds what you do for Hank Aaron. My right. guy is, look, I love, I love Henry. He's a, you know, that, the word iconic, the word hero, those things are, you know, yeah. used fast and loose and overused. But man... He's now 83 years old, and he has aged as gracefully as possible. He is a he is a philanthropist. He is a humanitarian. Um, he's a sweet, wonderful, charitable man, and I'm like it's one of the great joys of my life is to have a, have him as a friend and be part of his uh, Chasing the Dream Foundation. Yeah, we long, talked long a lot. From we talked a lot yeah. about him from uh, our, our first guest on this podcast was uh, Howard Bryant, who did his biography. Oh yeah, wow, and, uh, yeah. which is really a good book. Um, you have a uh, so just uh, two nights ago, I watched uh, Morningside Five, which really fascinated me. So that it's going to be a thirty for thirty in a couple weeks. Am I off on that? August eighth, uh, Tuesday night, August eighth on ESPN as part of a doubleheader. Just in a crazy coincidence, they were developing two films that centered around memorable high school basketball teams, and they saw them kind of coming to fruition at the same time so they are doing their i guess first ever documentary double bill uh tuesday night august 8th the other one's called baltimore boys ours is called morningside five uh i think theirs is first and we go second do you want to do a documentary about the uh 1990 mayo pack high school uh boys basketball (laughs) team which i quit controversially after seven days show me the footage man let's evaluate (laughs) um you um so basically you, uh, you followed this team first in 1992, and now you come back and sort of see where they are 25 years later. And um, am I wrong in feeling like for you, nostalgia and sort of what happened to these guys and where that is not just sort of a driving force in this film, but just sort of in your approach to sports? Yeah, um, I think that's fair and accurate. Um, look, we did this film not looking 25 years down the road that this will be a great series of docs or a great thing to follow five kids for a quarter of a century. Um, I moved to LA, got married, moved to LA, had a kid in 92 at the same time that this film was originally shot. I was a, a new father starting a new life, new career. Brian Robbins was my new partner we sold this thing to Fox in their fledgling Fox network with a very small alternative TV department run by Joe Davola, who would soon become their, our head of television at Tolan Robbins for better part of a decade. Um, he, he gave us the princely sum of 2,500, not thousand, 25, that's two comma five zero zero twenty five hundred $2,500 to make a sizzle reel. Uh, and said, don't fuck it up. That's Joe. That's Joe. If you know Joe Davola, um, three words, $2,500 in which to prove that these kids were worth following and there was a story worth telling. So they had won the state, California State High School Basketball Championship in 92, spring of 92. The five 
best players were all juniors, so they're all coming back. Um, they're all going to be the next Michael Jordan. They're all going to get four full rides to D1 schools. They're obviously going to waltz their way to a second straight state title. And it's a school called Morningside in Inglewood, California, which is adjacent to South Central. It's right after the riots, right after the Rodney King ver- verdict. These are very charged times. Um, a lot of racial tension. A school that used to be all white became all black and by this point was kind of majority black but increasingly Latino. Mm-hmm. So they... You know, I used to hear, like, how are we supposed to get along? We don't listen to the same music. We don't even have the same rules for dominoes. So we can't even play dominoes uh, in the courtyard during lunch. So, like, how, you know, how are we supposed to relate? Um, the basketball team was all African-American. Um, we uh, convinced administration, faculty, parents, kids to let us essentially matriculate for that year at Morningside. Brian and I bought these little cameras self-financed it, um, went to school every day, were there when there were shootings on campuses, were there for the practices when kids got suspended or got in trouble, um, followed all the games. As you'd suspect, it didn't go exactly according to the blueprint, kind of went off the rails, kind of amazing stuff you could never script happened. And um, hoop dreams hadn't happened yet, but ultimately there was a collision course and it did happen and it kind of blew us away. I actually referenced it in the beginning of the film because they had a five-year arc and that was really impressive to see the development um, and the path that these kids took and how their dreams evolved. And I don't remember the chronology, but Michael Apted, a British filmmaker who ultimately became the head of the Directors Guild and also a renowned feature film maker, was doing a documentary series that started with a bunch of seven-year-olds in Britain, started with the thesis, um, show me the boy at seven and I'll show you the man. And so he went back every seven years to visit with these same kids, seven up, 14 up, 21 up, 28 up. 28 up was about this time I, I seem to remember, got a lot of acclaim. And in my head, I think I'm thinking, uh, this might be, you know, a really interesting foundation for a series of docs. You know, who knows? Maybe this will become my 28 up. Then again, maybe I'm just making that up. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's 2020 hindsight. I think I thought that, but I, you know, I can't swear to it. But I do know that I stayed in touch with these guys. And then when it approached the 10 year mark, I rounded them up again. Um, they were willing. Um, we shot with them you know we had shot a little bit from their college we acquired uh, footage from their college careers we found them wherever they were we did the 10 years later we sold it to spike which is a new network we went through the film festival circuit and then all of a sudden um it approached 20 years later by which point there was this thing called 30 for 30 i was you know one of the producers in in the early days and friends with the guys who were making the programming decisions and they agreed to take a shot. So I kind of dug in, um, in starting in 2013 and, you know, took, took a while, um, partly cause, you know, I'm juggling a million other things, but partly cause I really was trying to see things unfold. And before you know it, as you said, it's 25 years, we go from 92 to 2017, a lot of surprises, a lot of bumps along the way. Um, but, um, a very, very personal journey for me when I realized that, wow, these guys are now the age that I was when we started. There's a, there's a little 
little snippet of footage in the beginning, much like in Small Potatoes, <laughs> in my better hair days, oh, in the right. 90s, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was just, we had, a, we had our first screening in L.A., um, overflow audience in a theater at the L.A. Film Festival, and then a Q&A afterwards with Ramona Shelburne moderating mm -hmm. um, for the five guys the fifth lives in Minnesota, me and Byron Scott and Paul Pierce, both of whom went to high schools in Inglewood, both of whom are in the film. And it was so moving to hear these kids talk about the struggles and what they've overcome to, to be here. And even more so to hear Byron and Paul and some of the questions from the audience, um, just congratulating these guys. Um, you know, did they make it to the NBA? No. But does that mean they were failures? Hardly. I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of this thing. There's this whole body of sports documentaries that I would put under the rubric of cautionary tales, right? Right. Lenny Cook being a great example. Um, Shay Cotton. Right. Um, and this is not that. This is, uh, this is real life. You know, Jim Brown's in the film and he talks about, you know, fatherhood. And these kids, m most of whom had absentee fathers, they're all really engaged with their kids. Right. Breaking that cycle. Um, you know, three of the five have uh, college degrees. Two of the five have advanced degrees, marriages, jobs, kids. It's real life, and it's really gratifying. Well, isn't it easy in your profession to be a sucker for the whole, like, you put on some looming music, you show a kid at, at 18, <laughs> you know, dunking over some kid, whatever, in a game, and now he's digging ditches, and you put on yeah, the music. Of course. But maybe the guy's happy digging ditches. You know, that's well. Yeah. You know what I mean, I find that sometimes bothersome. Like, maybe the guy's happy in his life just because he didn't end up playing in the NBA does not mean he's a failure of existence. Well, as I said, um, my first child was born in, in that year, and everything for me was through the lens of fatherhood. Right. Partly because that became the most important thing in my life, and still is, and will always be. Also, because these kids kind of didn't have what 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 I had and what I hoped to be, and which they now are. Um, and uh, uh, I have another kid who's adopted, who's 18 now, son. It's completely opposite from my daughter, right? So to your point, um, like we're reinventing the, the paradigm of success. That's, that's a lot of big words. What I really mean to say is like we're just playing with, with a different scorecard with this guy. His aspirations are very different. He's not academic. He's not going to go to an Ivy League school like my daughter. He may not even go to college, I think frankly don't think he should right he, but he's happy and he's got passions and he's got friends and he's in the world and like he teaches me every day what really matters and what what you know he's inventing his own dreams and like it's not for me to say you need to do this this or that it's to listen and help him guide him nurture him find his sweet spot right very well said um let me ask you a final question here how um how can you explain, or let me phrase it this way, more likely scenario, James Vanderbeek, um, NFL, <laughs> NFL quarterback, or Freddie Prince Jr. starting major league pitcher? Um, I have to choose one? Yeah. Which is more likely? More likely scenario. The beak. No doubt. <laughs> Was he athletic? You asked me a question. I answered it. <laughs> 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 come on you're asking me a very different question now can i build my team around the beak that's how i'm uh, i'll end with that uh 
James threw many of those passes himself. <laughs> and in the in the uh, you want to hear a real quick pitch from the please, series, please. All right. So the beat goes to Brown, as we saw in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a all Ivy League quarterback because you know we can believe that he you know could aspire to those lofty heights. Sure. Um, gets drafted by an NFL team, seventh round, kind of like my guy Hogan from Stanford, who did have a few snaps with the Browns last right. year, but not sure if that's the end of it. Um, great guy to have on the roster. Knows he's not starting quarterback caliber. Happy carrying the clipboard. Great guy to play, you know, the other team's quarterback in practice. Knows the playbook, fundamentals, good leadership, good good personal skills, so forth and so on. So he has his 15-year career, and he's the holder, right? So he, that's that's when he gets on the field, primarily is to hold for um, uh, field goals and extra points. Sure enough, um, it's could be Philly, some team that's never won a Super Bowl, the clock's winding down, he comes out, the snap comes. If they kick this field goal, they win. He botches the snap. It's this Tony Romo <laughs> moment. He ends He ends with a face plant, and that's the end of his career. And then we go back to West Canaan and see what happens next. Wow. So, yeah, you like that? I do, actually. I thought you were, you were almost telling me the Ryan Fitzpatrick story until <laughs> Dartmouth, you oh. know, Ivy League kid. Spoken like a Jets fan. Yeah, no kidding. Um, oh, man. I think finally our – the two green, the East Coast green pro football teams. I think my squad is in a better spot than oh, yours. By far. By far. By far. Also, two of our basketball teams, right? Like, I'm thrilled to be a Sixers fan right now. I'm psyched yeah. for the season. Yeah. And um, you as a Nick fan. I'm actually a Nets fan. I grew up rooting oh. for the Nets, so it's not even good. Oh, that's, oh, that's much better. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You didn't, you didn't pay $71 million for – Hardaway. Yeah, I know. But you did uh, – who did you just pick up? We got uh, Some... Russell. We got uh, yeah. Russell from L.A. That's all right. That was a good trade, actually. That's a nightmare. Yeah, what can I tell you? I want to thank today's guest, Mike Tolan, for joining me on Two Riders Slingin' Yang. One can listen to Two Riders Slingin' Yang on both iTunes and on Bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. And if you have any suggestions for future guests, I'm all ears. And I'm not just saying that. I really am all ears in this one. You can hit me up on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. You can uh, email me, angold22 at gmail.com. I'd like to thank the fantastic MC Whiteow for the beats. And thank you again for joining me. Uh, And please remember, keep writing.